Hey, Space Bros listeners. Welcome back for part two of Alien. If you haven't already checked out part one, we recommend that you head back. But, you know, follow your bliss. Hi, welcome to Space Bros, the podcast for bad bitch sci-fi nerds. I'm Kate Whitney, and with me is the radiant uh, moonbeam shooting out of her fingers, toes, and eyeballs, Mary Johnston, Space Queen. What's up, girl? I mean, it is true. It's a real nightmare <laughs> to sleep with me. I mean, I believe that, but at least it's the moon, right? So well, there was a summer. The sun. There was a summer where I would say that about half of the time you spent the night. So you would know. I mean, no, for sure. And let me tell you, it was okay. Your okay. moonbeams did not uh, make me sleepless. So, <laughs> so early on, yeah. one of the crew members refers to the alien as a son of a bitch. And and Ash. It's either Parker or Brett. Yeah. And I, and I think it's Parker because I think this happens like after Brett is dead. No, later. Yeah. Yeah. And Ash corrects him and says that the alien is Kane's son, the person that he john hurt's son that burst from his chest um yeah kane k-a-n-e but but i think there's some pretty clear biblical implications here um so kane and abel are the twin sons of um adam and eve adam and eve yeah and um the story of Cain and Abel is that when they're like teenagers or young men, they're both vying for God's affection by doing acts of service and sacrifices and that sort of thing. And for whatever reason, As you do. yeah, for whatever reason, old, this old Testament God is like, Abel is amazing. Cain, you just okay. And yeah. Cain does not like that. So he attacks, Tuts. so he attacks and kills his younger brother, his younger twin, Abel. And, yeah. I think that, um, uh, you know, in this is sort of a, a parable about, uh, or, the, or this is sort of read classically as that Cain is, is like the or originator of evil and violence and greed and avarice. Yeah, no, Cain is supposed to be like the originator of sin and... And he's the first. Well, I will correct you. The first you. time we see death. Eve is the well, originator. I mean, I'm an Eve, but like, yeah. but he's like, he's the first evil that we really yes. see. He brings and he, he brings by violence his brother, into the it's world. also the first uh yeah, he's the first violence we see. That's yeah. exactly it. Kane right. is the originator of violence and also by killing his brother is the first to introduce death into the Bible. That's true. And um you know, because the Bible likes everything in like neat little apple pie order, people often point out that Cain is the first human that was ever born. Adam and Eve were created. Cain is born. And he causes the first human to die by killing his brother. Yeah. Um, and you can see this kind of throughout the movie. I mean, this is definitely mm-hmm. like freshman year uh, English paper paint connect the dots kind of kind of analysis. No, totally. I would say, but um, but you have another. You have a character named Kane. Right. Uh, he's the first person to uh rise post xenomorph and he's also the first to die oh no actually i meant um kane is the first person to crawl out of his stasis pod you see it and it really hangs on i had to rewatch it he like it so you see the ship flickering on and then the door so he's the first son yeah he's mother he's the first son of mother he wakes up he's the first to wake up and they yeah, really that's, that's great. They really hang on it. Like he sits up in bed and he kind of stretches and like it's like he's de- and I don't even actually think 
you see everybody's pods open, but I don't th- actually think you see anybody else get up. You see him get up, and then there's the, sort of, that detailed shot, right? And then there's sort of like a time elapse sort of um, sort of transition, and then you see people putting on their clothes, but you don't see anybody else crawl out of their their pod womb, <laughs> like yeah, you their just see it pod womb. Um, and then no, that's great. Yeah, and then later, uh, it like minutes after that scene, um, Parker is like joking around with Kane. And Kane's like, oh, I don't even know if I'm alive, <laughs> like eating. And Parker laughs and, and says, anyone tell you you look dead? Which is, which is for, foreshadowing. Bum, bum, Foreshadowing. Yeah, exactly. English paper. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this is, the, this is the hacky connect the dots symbolism. But you yeah. know what? It exists for a reason. No, exactly. It's there. It's there. No, no doubt about it. <laughs> it doesn't make it any more true. It's just not particularly hard to do. Exactly. <laughs> uh, um, but so I think, anyway. but I think like the kind of the deeper layer of this is important to note that I think they are pointing out that these horrors that the characters, um, undergo are truly birthed from humans and have been around for as long as we have been around. So yeah, violence and violent procreation, um, and greed feels primordial and yep. greed. No, for sure. Us v the. Uh, the very basis of our almost our, our reptilian uh, brains, you know. <laughs> so after um, after unfortunately uh, Parker and Lambert are dispatched by the alien while after they've made a plan with Ripley, they decided they're going to blow up the ship and they're going to escape in the escape pod. Mm-hmm. Park, uh, uh, Parker and Lambert are killed. Ripley is now left to, on her own, and she's just taking it on like she's flipping switches. She's, you know, she's gonna blow up the, the gonna, ship in, in GTFO. Yep, pretty much. And as she's doing this, as she's running around and and triggering the self destruct, she comes upon a little quiet, creepy corner of the ship where she sees, um, and it, it's ex- explicitly Brett and Dallas, the two white men yeah. who were killed, have been kind of glued to the wall. And with yeah. all this, like, alien slime, which you recognize because it was kind of coating the, the egg chamber um, in the beginning when they go into that primordial ship. And Yeah, no, the xenomorph is making the ship its own. Yes. It is. And Brett and Dallas are still over. alive. It's colonizing the ship. Sorry, oh ahead. my god. Yeah, and Brett is Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? it is. Colonialism. It totally, it totally anyway. is. Um and Brett and Dallas are in like real bad shape, but they're still alive. They're kind of, kind of these mangled bodies and they're completely incapacitated, but they're clearly still conscious. Um because Dallas begs Dallas is yeah. Begs uh Ripley to kill him. <laughs> He's in terrible pain. And we're we're made to understand basically that they have been set up as sort of this um egg incubator. Um, yeah and that and i think that this this they're gonna have to carry their raped children uh their their rape babies to term you know yeah and Uh. it's not and it's not like they're it's not like they are um like sad brave women who are who are birthing these things these are being systematically and and like a factory set up no you're being (laughs) right (coughs) no exactly it's 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 factory-esque it is capitalism it is churning out uh using bodies as a means of production yep. using humans and rape as yep. a means for production yep which is gross it's the extreme cruelty of human bodies as a mean for production yeah 
Well, and so, and consistently throughout, there are themes of money, class, and inhumanity, um, capitalism. Uh, I One of the very first things we learn about um, Parker and Brett is that they start from the very beginning of getting out of their, uh, their pods, talking about pay discrepancies. Uh, they want to make sure that they're getting their shares. They don't feel like they're um, getting enough money. And it's almost framed initially... Like you're supposed to um, see them kind of as just whiny and dismiss them, you know, blue or, or the, people are more greedy almost, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it, almost like they're cowards because so yes. everybody, everybody is like lined up perfectly like little chess pieces. So you have Brett and Parker who are the working class. They get paid less than everybody else. They have the lowest rank of anybody else. And they do the grunt work. Like, when it's time to crawl under an exhaust duct and do some welding, it's one of them to go. Meanwhile, yeah. the captain... When it's, when it's time to, to fix the ship and things are getting creepy, they're still the ones sent out there. Right. They don't send They don't send initially the, the any of the other members out with a crowbar and a flashlight <laughs> to catch a cat. Yeah. They, yeah, they send Brett. Brett. <laughs> they send Brett. Yeah. So, um... So, and particularly, Parker kind of keeps bringing up this idea that there's pay discrepancy. Um, and he's consistently always shut down by Ash. So, yeah. the first time he does it, it's right after they're eating breakfast. It's right after he says, you know, um, he's, he's told Kane that he looks dead. And then he brings up, he brings up the share. And Ash immediately comes in and is like, hey, Dallas, you need to go talk to Mother. And then the second time it happens is they've received what they have perceived as this SOS from the planetoid, and they're going to go down and, and check it out. But Parker is like, you know, that's way above my pay grade. But if I got yeah. paid a little bit more, maybe I'd be willing to to play the hero. To risk my life, yeah. And Ash is the first one to point out, well, actually, when you signed your contract, it says that you have to do, you have to respond to any um, SOS messages or you forfeit your shares. So, which we all now know, having discussed this, that they they are expendable in the eyes of the company. So basically, either you do it and you potentially die and forfeit your shares, or you don't do it and you forfeit your shares. The company does not care. Well, and also they mentioned does not care. They mentioned later on. So while the while Dallas and Lambert and Kane are out digging around in the egg farm ship, um, Ripley is mm -hmm. back translating the war the, the the message they received which they perceived as an sos she's translating it and later yeah. she says it's not an sos it's a warning so right which clearly the company knew so this clause doesn't even apply <laughs> to what they're exactly. talking about no, exactly and it's just exactly it's, it's all it's it's a it's um misinformation it's mirrors. yep used to and... force people to do what the company needs to wants them to do um absolutely but yeah, so they kind Lowering of... the value of human life in favor of the dollar. Right. So Ripley is our protagonist, and we see the we see her transform throughout this film um, yeah. against what she originally viewed as uh, a company that she had, you know, quite a bit of trust and was loyal to. So initially... Respect. Yeah, and initially when you see her, um, she... She is not like Parker and Brett. She is not dissatisfied with the company. Even though she she does seem more like the blue collar worker than the other um, 
people on the ship, like like Brett and uh, Parker. Right. Well, that just might just be that she's actually doing her job, um, which I think we can <laughs> all relate to. Like a woman, she goes in, she gets shit done. Exactly. So. Exactly. But uh, she initially she initially puts a lot of her trust and and beliefs into the laws of the comp that the company is held to and the promises that they've made to protect the workers. Like it's a terrible moment for her when that is disrupted when she reads the order. Like she cannot believe yeah. that that is the case and she's distraught. But you see early on, um, she tells like uh, Parker has made another comment about his shares, and she says, "You're guaranteed by law." to receive a share so she's a character yeah yeah, she's a character who um who 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 has bought into this myth and i think that it's um kind of poignant and and points to our current nightmare where we have the middle class represented here by ripley being duped by big corporations into believing that the working class uh brett and parker are not oppressed they are not being cheated that they are merely whiners and that the company has ensured that they are making the correct amount of money for their efforts um yeah and that and i think it points that that is not that is a feature for capitalism not a bug like this is not yeah. this is something that is systematically working for capitalism so it, it's carried forward yeah i love that by the way i think oh, that was just all brilliant yeah, that's okay. when I, that's when I was like, we're on to something, man. <laughs> like, I no, no, we are for sure. Yeah. Um, so, and and to further that, uh, in in line with the company being seen as like this uh, benevolent force to Ripley in the beginning, uh, the ship and its OS are coded as friendly helpers. Um, Mother is the name of the ship, and she holds the crew members and the stasis of her womb. Um, which are womb-like. They're these little, like, pods. They they actually are not... Yeah. Dis- they're not dissimilar to the eggs, which is sort of weird. Yeah, no, no, they're, 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 they're like, they're incubators, it seems like, yeah. you know? Um, but, uh, Mother's not as protective and nurturing as, uh, the name she's given implies. Yeah. Um, she, I mean, she's carrying, she's carrying this, this human, her human brood. Um, not so that they can, and pro- not in a protective way, not in a way that they can continue to thrive, um, as we are, we are led to believe a mother would. Instead, right. she is just merely keeping them warm so that they can be walking egg incubators for a much more brutal and more importantly, uh, valuable, like, <laughs> uh, form of life. Which really, I would like to just take a moment and be like, this is what capitalism does. It doesn't value you as a human being. It values you as uh, what your purpose is. This idea that we feel like we have to be making content, we have to be like making something, we have to be contributing, uh, or we don't have any worth. It is putting our work value above our personhood. And that is exactly what um, this ship is doing. Um, getting off my soapbox. Good <laughs> to you, Mary. I think this whole thing is us just permanently being on our soapbox. Uh, (laughs) by by the way um by the way but it's also kind of surprising and and this is this is uh another interesting thing so you know there always is a moment when i watch uh big animal movies i'm looking specifically at deep blue sea which is a big animal movie that i love where like the concept of that movie is that you have these sharks and they contain um certain brain proteins right that can fix 
uh, people with Alzheimer's. And yeah. when you watch that movie, of course, you're like, you feel bad because you don't want uh, LL Cool J to die. But <laughs> there is a small totally. part of me that is like, well, these are the lives of like, you know, five people. And they could potentially save if they you know their sacrifice could successful right if successful can save the lives of of many people (laughs) so eh. so when they're like we got to blow these sharks up i'm like maybe maybe you don't i don't know yeah i know the utilitarianism in you tells you that maybe well then that's okay but like in this case this thing is just a weapon it's just a terrifying brutal weapon it's not gonna save lives it's not it's not it's not even viewed as like or there's like all these kind of movies where you have a scientist and they discover something like horrifying but they're like but it's so beautiful because it's science and ash kind of does this but his commitment to the company i think betrays that like the company is not does not want the xenomorphs because they're an evolutionary marvel or they're like they're fascinated by its beauty there's no art in it why they want the xenomorphs is so that they can capture it kill it dissect it and figure out how to use its advanced evolutionary technology to sell weapons that's what they want it for and that is that is not that is not anything that a human should should want or respect. No. That's not even that's not even um, a deranged sense of passion. That's just putting your heart on a bottom line right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It replaces human worth with monetization. <laughs> basically. Which is pretty gross. Yeah. So uh, Wrigley Scott is a uh, literary fellow and he particularly loves the work of uh, Joseph Conrad. It's peppered throughout the entire Alien franchise. And one of the first in this Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. Right. Which I always thought Mm -hmm. before college, I always thought Heart of Darkness was just sort of like the most boring book of all time. And then I took an entire (laughs) class. I took an entire class about (laughs) about specifically about Heart of Darkness because it was taught by a professor that I absolutely adored. And I do love that. I mean, I get that because you loved your professor, but I do love that you're like, Oh, this book that I just don't really like? Sure. Sure. Well, I talked to him, too, because I was like, I really want to take this class, but I don't really think I care that much about Heart of Darkness. And he was like, oh, you do care. Oh, by the way, you do care. And he was right. (laughs) But anyway, beside that. Anyway. So, so, Nostromo. Joseph Conrad also wrote a book called Nostromo. Actually, I think it's a novella. But Nostromo is about a sailor who's named Nostromo who is known for being like the ultimate swashbuckler. Like he's like the best sailor and he's brave and he's good to his men. And he's just like, he's just like the best basically. And he is, um, he's kind of mixed up. He wants to, he's he's a working class guy and he wants to ascend and live the dream and make money and eventually become the upper class. That's, that's what he wants to do. So he has all these rich friends, but they're not really his friends. And it's explicit in the beginning of the novel. Basically, two of these guys meet and they're like, yeah, Nostromo's never going to be like our class. He's not us. But he could help us um, maintain the status quo and hold on to a lot of our money, which is in this silver mine in South America. So they say so they're um, 
So people have come into power of this particular uh, port town in South America, and they're letting these European, um, basically nobility and businessmen, take all the silver from these mines. And there are all these right. revolutionaries that are disrupting that, and, try, and so they're they're you know stealing from these people who are stealing from South America. So these rich guys put it to Nostromo. They're like, "You're the best. You're you know you're the best sailor ever. I know you can get in there, load up your ship, take all, bring all, and bring all the silver back to us without any of the revolutionaries getting it." And Nostromo's like, "Yeah, this is my chance. I'm gonna prove how amazing I am at this, and then they're gonna let me be one of them. That's my goal." And yeah. basically, nothing goes right. He uh, he gets in a terrible um, sh- uh, like shipwreck. Um, he sa- and he saves as much of the silver as he can, but it's kind of futile. Eventually, he makes it yeah. back, and through like just cruel circumstance, he is shot and killed while he's trying to visit his girlfriend by his girlfriend's dad at the very end of the book. But the over the course of this, Nostromo is kind of undone by greed, but it's not greed. It's very clear that it's not greed inherent to his nature. He was not a greedy man. But by trying to fit in with these rich people, by trying to prove himself, he's fixated on capitalism. Right. He's fixated on silver, even though it is it is completely explicit in the beginning that he is never, ever he's never anything except a tool to these people. Um, Yeah. And that this 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 his undoing is conscripted upon him by his employers, not something he would choose for himself if he was in a free and just society. Um, Yeah. His name is kind of a joke. It's a corruption of uh, the Italian phrase uh, Nostro Uomo, which means our man. So he's like the ultimate company man. It's kind of the joke yeah, yeah. of his name. No, that's that's a great name for this ship. Because right? Because it's, yeah. it, it's such a good name because it also suggests that like, what are these? So kind of classically i think uh when you talk about alien you talk about the fact that these people are basically like space truckers but yeah what exactly are they hauling so we know they're hauling all this ore back to earth but this would no they but they get tricked into hauling something that is not true to their nature and it destroys them right absolutely but also where where did that ore come from like, yeah, like, so the Stromo, like, I think it's just rotten all the way down. Right. So yeah, if the Stromo is the is is this this ship that's hauling back, um, that's hauling back ore, and then you have this man who's stealing silver for rich people. I think we can kind of assume that that none, even their prime directive is not helping anyone except their bosses back on Earth. Yeah. Um, so I would argue that ultimately, uh, the movie Alien is about capitalism taking over reproduction, that the aliens are the manifestation of what capitalism does to reproduction by making it, um, factory-like and forcible and, and bringing it in on the backs of working people. In capitalism, nobody can hear you scream, but luckily... We have a badass like Ripley to rebel. Yeah, Ripley is definitely representative of us. The person who um, maybe trusts the system, wants to believe in the system, but once they see the system is corrupted, it's not going to be taken down. Right. Her Um, disillusionment does not lead her to madness. It leads her to action. Yes. 
Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Ripley as a character. Because, we could have done um, a whole episode about her. I mean, I think that Alien is just so rich with other themes that um, yeah. we felt compelled to just do about the whole movie. But she would, I mean, she is she's definitely an icon of feminist sci-fi. And we, we, will, we will probably, we will almost definitely be revisiting Ripley in Aliens or in another episode of her own. But... Yeah, let's, um, what's really interesting to me, and this is, it sounds like lore around the movie, but I looked it up and it is actually factual. Uh, so Ripley was original, in the original treatments of the script was written as a man, and Ridley Scott decided it would be fun to see what a female hero would do in the situation, uh, which is a funny way to think about things. I love that diversity just comes at like the whims of uh men being like what about that but um oh, as a woman? result wow <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> exactly as a result she's not like uh held down by a, a bunch of tropes that other female heroines were defined by she is in fact no way defined by a relationship with a man which i just want to say is incredibly powerful yeah i mean she doesn't have she does not have a romantic arc at all no in this film and and nor like yeah, she works with, with other men, but, like, there's no moment in which you think that her value comes from a relationship with a man on that ship at all, even yeah. for a second. Um, I did read something crazy, <laughs> which was, so, at the end of the movie Alien, Ripley successfully um, sets off the self-destruct method, uh, mm-hmm. a protocol for, the sh- for a Nostromo. She crawls into the the escape the escape ship. It flies away. She watches the Nostromo explode in this incredibly dramatic scene, and that was supposed yeah. to be the end of the movie. Three explosions. Yeah, that was like, what that was supposed to be the end of the movie. Like they were just gonna have that, and then she was gonna crawl into her sleep pod, and then that was gonna be it. But. When they shot it's it, it's much more satisfying the way yeah. that they did it. Yeah, but when they shot it, Ridley Scott was like, "This is lame. She doesn't actually ever get to get like one truly over on the alien. She doesn't, you know, she has lots of moments where she kind of avoids him on the ship and like runs around, but there isn't there isn't a confrontation. Yeah, there has to be a face down. Exactly. Yeah. So the, instead, what they did is, of course, uh, she's she kind of you know she gets. Um, she gets kind of situated. She gets down into her cozy clothes, and which do yeah. Not she like, puts the cat in the pod, right. you know. Yeah, she beds, she, she beds down the cat. <clears throat> She's kind of like puttering around the ship, getting it all set. And suddenly, she notices that the alien has on on board the escape pod, and must be very tired from all of the yeah, raping. Taking and- a nap. Did it, <laughs> yeah, did a lot of killing and stuff. Well, happened that- to just escape by taking a nap on the ship. Which I get. I like to take naps where I am too. That's fair. So it's all like curled up in a little corner, and it just it just kind of seems like a little bit out of it. But she has to think fast. So what she does is she puts on um, one of the available spacesuits, and mm-hmm. she um, she waits until the alien has fully stood up and is sort of looming over her, so that it's out in the open and exposed, and mm-hmm. opens up the. Um, opens up one of the airlock doors opening up the ship to space it gets yeah the alien gets sucked towards the door she hits it with a harpoon gun for, for good measure just to force yeah, it out the door you know, don't, don't leave anything to chance I and like then, it. 
Be thorough, girl. You got this. Closes the door, and as the alien is bouncing helplessly off the hull of her ship, she burns it up with her um, with her engine boosters. It's yep. very satisfying. Before it's, a, it's the most satisfying. Before that, that thing is dead. Yeah. Before eventually crawling back into her own stasis, happy stasis pod for one, and falling asleep, looking angelic with- and spacely. And with a and with a sweet little cat on her chest. That's true. She's not she's not by herself. Real quick, I I know that it's not like canonical, but um, Ripley's a lesbian with her pet cat that she curls up with. That's not okay. <laughs> That's obviously not true, but we're just putting it out there. If I believe it, it's real. <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm saying she's a queer. She's a queer, queer. woman, and therefore, uh, uh, you know. Keeps a, a cat by her side. Of course. Know? I mean, that. Yeah. As, as, as we queer women do. Uh, anyway. Or want to do. Or um, want to do. So Jonesy is kind of a big deal. And there's a lot mm-hmm. within, the, within this movie. And um, in fact, even coined their own, his own term for, uh, for heroic tropes in film, which is save the cat. So as Ripley is is running around and setting off the self-destruct protocol, she is constantly kind of looking for him and eventually crams him into a space cat carrier and manages to pull him onto the escape pod with her. And she's concerned about that, right? Like she wants to she wants to preserve life at any cost. All of her other crewmates are dead. The only crewmate she's got left is Jonesy, and she's going to be damned if she leaves him behind just to be blown up on the ship. And yeah, people have suggested that this is something that you have to do as you build a heroic character. You need to have them save the cat or prove in some way that they are, are noble and just and good. I would say it's also a little bit richer than that. It's not just simply that we need to believe that Ripley is a better person than anybody else on the ship. And that's why she's allowed to survive. I feel like that's kind of hol- or a very basic reading of this. I think that yeah. it... It shows that, you know, we see Ripley go through this this existential crisis where the company that she's put her trust in has has betrayed her on a very deep level. And all of the rules and natural orders of of life, as she knows it, have been flipped on their head. And her rebellion is not simply to escape and and dispatch this creature that the company wants just to get revenge her her she also is rebelling against their ideology of yeah of um preservation of life being secondary extremely secondary to capital gains so whereas the company's cold logic does not even put anything in place that would potentially allow these people to survive bringing back a xenomorph like they don't tell them there's no there's no special containment facilities on the Stromo, nothing. Ripley yeah. is not satisfied with that. Ripley is going to save the cat because preservation of life is is her primary concern over, yeah. over anything else. It's also suggested that uh, Jonesy represents uh, Wrigley Scott because they're both gingers. And so- <laughs> also, it's just fun to consider. Yeah, it's cons- let me tell you, this cat doesn't necessarily work the way that a cat does. Like, no, it does not. <laughs> All cats are the same, but you know, this cat's more like a male director. That's all. I'm 
<laughs> I, I kind of think so. I mean, like he kind of he kind of watches. He he's an observer for a lot of it. The xenomorph does not seem interested in Jonesy at all. So yeah. it's, it's almost as if Jonesy is like is kind of on like a plane above the way that Jonesy moves through the ship. Also, like I would say this movie has a really good sense of space. I kind of understand where everybody is, even when um, there's that end sequence where Lambert and Parker and uh, Ripley are running around like kind of doing all these tasks. I still sort of understand where everybody is in relation to the hub of the ship. But Jonesy yeah. kind of moves around at random and, and, and shows pops in at moments that he's needed in, sort of. So he can, like, watch this thing, this this alien uh, kill members of the crew. Um, somewhat like a director would. He's yes. the omnipresent camera eye watching the action here. Yeah, and let me tell you, that's generally just our either, like, if they're... Yeah, they're gonna flee. They're not just gonna watch, like, this weird alien destroy humans, alright? Maybe your cat's braver than mine, but let me tell you, this alien, by the time the cat's, like, watching kill things, is freaking gigantic. Back me up here, Mary. It's true. Absolutely huge. Giant cat. I mean, giant alien. <laughs> I'm not tired at all. I don't know what you're talking about. <clears throat> I'm tired. You're tired, not me. Um... You're, yeah. Your face is tired. Anyway. <laughs> Well, should we talk a little bit about the design? I would love to. Yeah. I loved the design of this movie. I was, I was like drooling oh over it so much. It's really gorgeous. Like it's crazy. Like I, like we've already talked a little bit about uh, the cathedral esque um, space that is Mother's Sanctuary, um, which is just freaking gorgeous. Like white padded, like looking walls with like a uh, flashing warm, like. Uh, white light um, LED blinking all over. lights yes exactly and that's and that's gorgeous but um my favorite thing to talk about would be uh the alien ship we're not there very long but um it looks immediately like you're inside of a part of a body it's very both organic and mechanical wow. um mary would you like to talk a little bit about uh the Production designer? Who, yeah. Not production designer. Concept artist? Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, the xenomorph and everything xenomorph that you see in the film um, is the conception and uh, production of the Swiss surrealist H.R. Um, Giger. And uh, he, he was making this art and actually had drawn some of these things well before alien was even an idea if you look at the early concept art before Giger is brought on of the alien they kind of look like wingless moths they're like many legged and they're kind of hunched over they look stupid if they looked like that we would not be talking about this movie probably <laughs> um but uh O'Bannon again the screenwriter knew of Giger's work because they both worked on the doomed project uh, the doomed version of Dune which was never produced um, that Yordorowski, um, the, the amazing filmmaker who makes crazy weird films, uh, was yeah. kind of, he, he had this concept to make Dune and it was going to be this like six hour epic. And, uh, it's, it's well worth digging into that, uh, story. There's a great documentary called Yordorowski's Dune and 
you get all kinds of amazing things like just this him talking about how oh we needed this character who was like big and fat and like full of himself and and, and ego and id personified so of course i had to have orson wells play him and he did obviously totally <laughs> and, and they made that's my first thought right and like it just like you know he gets salvador dali involved and anyway it's just like this huge epic and they made this giant book and and o'bannon was along for the whole thing and when he was brought on uh, by wrigley scott to work on alien he was like we got to get this geeker guy because he can nail what these aliens need to look like so yeah his we will also be posting uh, a link that has some of his early concept drawings because they are terrifying they're even more like they're even more terrifying than what's in the film which is pretty yeah, frightening they, yeah they are when and he I, said that they were a result of his dreams which if i had these dreams i would never um want to go sleep ever again yeah so giger is a a artist that works in the um the biomechanical realm which basically means that, and, and his takes on a particularly grim aspect of that. So biomechanics, like um, things like Westworld deal with that. But it's, any, it's anything where it's, it's mechanical underpinnings of biological forms. And so this can look a lot of different ways. But the thing that he does is he connects it strongly with images that we classically associate with death. And, um, and, yeah. and death that's been around for a long time. His, all of his stuff basically looks like stripped down bones that are rendered in metal. So everything yeah. is alive. Everything is recognizable as being an organic substance, but nothing, but nothing is, is vibrant. Nothing is verdant. Nothing is bursting forth with, um, with life. Everything is dead. And that's right. why, that's why these things look so creepy. Um, yeah. The, the image that I particularly looked at, and it, you only see it for a second, but um, it was actually brought to my attention when I was reading about Oban and talking about how he wanted to make all the men's legs cross. And it, what he was particularly talking about was a piece of concept art where you see um, the rescue crew walking into the ship for the first time, the alien ship for the first time. And you notice that yeah. it's sort of... It's sort of this, like, it's just, it feels unfathomably huge, first of all. It's like this yeah. huge set piece. And it what it looks like is you have these vaginal openings stamped at precise intervals down the side of this hull of the ship. Like, they were factory placed there. And then the yeah. rest of the ship is sort of almost zeppelin-like in shape and also it's but it's instead of having a structure that is um that is uniform it's sort of crisscrossed with these big cable veiny things <laughs> so it looks like yeah, this, it looks like the inside of a body it looks sure. like a big womb and then it holds yeah. all these aliens like basically what these people do is they crawl inside a giant, a giant alien womb a giant dead alien womb <laughs> That's yep. full of eggs. Like, yep. But unfortunately, the eggs haven't died. Sorry, guys. No, no. But fortunately, because we get this amazing movie. Yeah, absolutely. I loved the way that Nostromo looks, too. I think it's a great, it's a great looking ship. Yeah, no, the production design on this is incredibly amazing. They do a good job of mixing old and new, which I think makes it feel more real. You know, we don't. 
we don't like the Jetsons um, are a good example of this where you can like place that futurism to a very specific time because all the shapes um, the, all the shapes are kind of space racy and Alien does that too. It has some like the the coffee mug that, that all the crew members drink out of is like straight up retro space race. But they yeah. also layer on more modern tech and then stuff that's a little bit older and like you get the sort of world that you believe that techno- technology has been building on and, and progressing towards. You know, they have kind of these 80s cell phone walkie-talkie things. And then, I'm I'm serious, I, I don't know that this is true, but if Steve Jobs did not see Alien and was not deeply moved by those stasis pods, I don't believe it. <laughs> like, it no, looks, for sure. It looks for like sure. Something... They do have, like, an early iPod look. Like, that kind of, like, white, clean, Gla- lines, light. Glassy, milky white. <laughs> like, yeah. that kind of look. No, you're totally right. You're is, absolutely right. Is, like, very Steve formal Jobs, thinking. we see what you did. Yep. Rest in peace. R.I.P. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. But what's, well, also, but what's also cool about the ship is that it transforms. So when you first look at it, like when we kind of were talking about it, it sort of looks like something that you could imagine, um, you know, flying to Europe on. It's sort of like a tricked out commercial plane kind of feel. Like Totally. But when, and that, that's when it's kind of all like bright and people are moving around and, and doing kind of homey tasks and, and, and laughing around a kitchen table and that kind of stuff. But then once... Once um, they start, uh, but the world of the Xenomorph, when the Xenomorph takes over and starts, as you so aptly put it, colonizing the ship, um, Mm -hmm. the lights all drop, everything is red and orange, and suddenly you realize that all the, like, intricate ductwork and stuff (laughs) mimics the Xenomorph design enough so that the Xenomorph kind of blends in and can camouflage itself in the ship. Yeah. So... It becomes like this house of horrors. It, it transforms entirely, basically just because of light, and that's an amazing design feat where you can take you can take something that looks familiar structurally and then weave in enough bio uh, mechanical elements such that just a change of light can transform that. Absolutely, absolutely. Good lighting's also like uh, my weak spot. Uh, I think it's. The best. And this movie definitely accomplishes the mission. Yeah. So, I think that pretty much wraps it up for Alien. I, I think it does. Uh, we'll, you know, I know that after you watched, rewatched Alien for this podcast, uh, you were so incredibly excited and probably already went on to watch Aliens. We will be back to uh, the franchise. We will see our friend Ripley again. But in the meantime, next week, if you'd like to do a little bit of homework, we'll be taking on our first comic book, Bitch Planet, Volume 1, Extraordinary Machine by Kelly Sue DeConnick. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. That's going to be very different from any of the other episodes we've done thus far. And I am absolutely I'm ready for a breath of fresh. That is Bitch Bitch Planet for sure. Yeah, and that's the thing. We're playing with uh, some multi-genre stuff here. So if you have anything that you're interested in us playing, uh, visit our website, outrageousmechanisms.com slash spacebras to see where you can send us 
a little bit of uh, information about what you want us to talk about. Right yeah. Now? Hit us up on the social media and uh, and let us know what you thought of our discussions. If you thought we were right, if you thought we were wrong, if you thought we missed important stuff, if you thought we dwelled too much on things that aren't important, anything. We would love to hear yeah. from you. Well, thank you for listening to Space Bras. Head over to Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Be sure to visit outrageousmechanisms.com slash space bras. That is S-P-A-C-E dash B-R-A-S to see our show notes and find other excellent podcasts. And now join us as we raise our glass and give the official Space Bras toast, which also you might find is Kate and my toast from early days. We've been doing this toast for a long time. Indeed. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Welcome to the fold. And what we do is we say, in these troubled times, we must remember that even though everyone else might suck, we are awesome. And ultimately, the galaxy is ours. Cheers! Outrageous, outrageous mechanisms, mechanisms production. production.